Well, I don't know about you to church this morning, uh, but my heart is happy. The pastor is in the house. Amen. It was just several weeks ago that uh, we prayed, even here at the altar. I know at least during the second service, uh, you know, the concern, of course, was his voice. Here is a man of God who proclaims the word of God accurately. God is using mightily for the furtherance of his kingdom. And, uh, oh, for that voice to be harmed, for that voice to be heard. And uh, we prayed, and as you heard this morning, God answered our prayer. And I don't know about you, I know we're Baptists, but I think that's worth a hallelujah. Amen? Amen. Let's give God a hand. Praise God. Praise God. Brother, it is good. It does my heart to see you here. I don't know. You're such an encouragement to me, and I know that is amen throughout the church. Amen, church? Amen. Good to see the pastor in the house this morning. Uh, we're in Hebrews chapter 12, and as you know, we're finishing up our, our, our series on the idea of faith. And uh, just a little background, briefly, we know the author is writing the book of Hebrews as an exhortation. Uh, many uh, that the writer was writing to, the audience, was falling away from the faith, or at least some were receding in their faith. And he is encouraging them, this is no time to stand back. This is time to go forward. And part of his argument at the very beginning is our faith has substance. This is not a hope-so faith. There's some evidence. There's some substance to our faith. And we talked about some of those. Not only is in creation is God's fingerprints everywhere to say that he is, but he's personally revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Now, this would be that substance, that evidence that the Hebrews would have within a generation the Messiah has come. And uh, what a great time to launch out in greater faith in the promises of God, knowing that they're going to be fulfilled because he's been found faithful to fulfill what he's promised thus far. And uh, we have evidence, we have substance, uh, just looking. Uh, we have through redemptive history, we have seen the whole chapter 11 covers many in the redemptive history who have placed their faith and trust in God and uh, have found him to be faithful. So there's great, great encouragement for us as believers today to stand firm in the faith in Jesus Christ and not stand but as we're looking at this morning it is a race that we want to run we want to endure just counting on the promises of God we see here in chapter 12 it, it starts right off with therefore now as we have learned and as a pastor preaches every time you see a therefore in the Bible it encourages us to look what has gone before so therefore, uh, 11 is all those people of faith who uh, just trusted God. And, 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 and therefore, we, he, the author tells us we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses. Those who would willingly uh, have demonstrated in their life the trustworthiness of Christ. And we think about this idea of witnesses and, and the race and the, maybe a possibility of a stadium going around. There's this... I thought that maybe these great cloud of witnesses are looking down on us. Well, you know, that's just not true. Uh, their life was laid out for us to bear witness of what they had done, their faith, the faith they had exercised in God. So they stand as witnesses to us. Encouragement is what the author is trying to bring out as he's trying to bring out this, uh, these people that have trusted God. And I tell you, there, there's an old adage, and, and I don't get it. It says that misery loves company. Have you ever heard that? Hey, I guess I kind of understand that misery loves company, but I don't see the application there. You know, if I'm in misery, uh, do I gather around me a bunch of other miserable people and somehow that is supposed to encourage me? I, somebody after service helped me out with that because that would make me more miserable. I mean, am I supposed to compare problems and everybody whine and complain and say, well, hey, I'm not that bad, so I guess I feel good. That's not the author's goal here. You know, the author's goal is to encourage us, to lift us up, to, to be willing to place more faith and trust 
in Jesus Christ. And he, again, he's drawing upon this, these witnesses in, in verse 11. And how he's working in chapter 12 here, he's very much given us uh, the idea of a race and runners and, and even a stadium. And as you kind of look at this passage as you read through it, you see there's these cloud of witnesses, a lot of people. And then you see these runners coming in, and as they're preparing to run this race, what are they doing? Uh, they're taking off articles that might impede or hinder them. Uh, in my mind's eye, I see them kind of tying their shoes, because the last thing you want to do is have your shoes untied when you run. Devastating things may happen. Um, but, but, but then there's this sense of focus. Uh, I've never seen people run long distances or marathon just kind of running around and kind of looking at the crowd. They have a focused look on their face. And, of course, the author is going to tie all these things ultimately to Christ, keeping our focus on him. And uh, he's going to try to encourage us at least in three areas as we think about this idea of an unshakable faith and having a life that counts for Christ. You know, my heart's desire, and I pray it's yours, that at the end of our life, looking back, we have made our life count for the cause of Christ. Because, you know, for eternity's sake, that's all that really is going to matter, isn't it? I mean, when we breathe our last here, has our life counted for the cause of Christ? Well, as we look through these passages, I think there's three things the author would want to convey for us. And as, as runners, they had to lighten up. And, and runners, they have to keep up or endure. And ultimately, they have to look up. They have to look to a goal. They have to look towards a prize. And they're willing to suffer any pain or any uh, suffering they have to go through to get to that prize. Let's look first at, let's lighten up. Look at chapter 12, verse 1, just the very first part of it. It says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance, or you might put the word uh, 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 weight there, that, that encumbrance and, and that sin which so easily entangle us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. These two things the first author first mentions is, is this encumbrance. You know, the Greek word there, agon, means a bulk or a mass. Or it could even mean superfluous flesh. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to challenge you something, and, it, and it, I'm just going to challenge your reason this morning. Uh, Brother Mike standing up here next to me, okay? And I'm telling you, church, next Saturday, we're going to run a 10-mile run. Don't worry about hurting my feelings. Who do you think is going to win that race? You think Brother Mike's going to win that race? Raise your hand. You're in church, church. <laughs> do you think I will win that race? Raise your hand. Somebody love me. Thank you. <laughs> you repent later when we have an altar call, okay? <laughs> no, but you make this observation. You haven't seen us training, but you're kind of coming to a conclusion based on one thing. One of us is carrying a little less weight a little less burden than the other, and after about six, well, in my case, one or two miles, that's going to start having an impact. So, and it's an easy conclusion, and really that's what the author is trying to carry uh, to us when he talks about this runner coming in. Uh, the first thing they do is they want to reduce this weight because weight impedes, doesn't it? It kind of holds us back. You know, this is just for me, you know, not all weight is necessarily bad weight, Amen? But I'm going to tell you this, as far as a runner, as far as someone pursuing after a goal and, 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 and desiring to finish strong, anything that retards your ability to run is harmful. It really is. And as we look through all the Bible, all, all the book of Hebrews anyway, I can't help but capture what was their hindrance. What was that weight that was holding them back? 
you know, we know it was unfaithfulness, but there was all, and we're going to talk about that in just a second, but there was also this fear. You know, they wouldn't even assemble together. And the authors encourage him, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Well, if he's telling them that, what was happening? There was some that was forsaking the assembling of themselves together. There was this idea of fear of persecution. Now, it hadn't always been that way, but at the time of the writing, it was. And listen, all fear is not bad fear. You know, there is an instinct of fear that kind of gets your adrenaline pumping and sometimes can get you out of bad situations. Uh, when I was in high school, probably the last time I went hunting, you know, I walked up on a rattlesnake. You know, it's, it's neat, the counsel they give you, say, you know, when you walk up on a snake like that, you want to be real still. And, uh, you know, it'll crawl away because it doesn't really care to bite you. It's just feeling threatened. Well, you know, that's great on paper. But let me tell you something, the reaction, it don't happen. I'm walking, I look down, and probably no further than a foot or two from my leg was a coiled rattlesnake. I'm going to tell you, I saw the tops of pine trees. There was no thought of the book, well, I need to stay still. I mean, I bolted in the air. I landed, I don't know, 50, 60, 100 feet away. Now, I'm being a little bit kidding here. But listen, no one to do with that. But you know what that was? That was an instinctive fear with me that got the adrenaline pumping that caused that to happen. So, you know, it's not all bad, but it's that which hinders, that which holds us down. And what I'm trying to tell you about fear, at least for the Hebrews, when it becomes a lifestyle, it's ungodly. A lifestyle of fear within the believer of Jesus Christ is unpleasing to God. We look in Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. Paul writes this to Timothy about fear. It says, For God has have not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which he granted us in Christ Jesus for all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. If you look back at the very uh, beginning of where I read, it says, join me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. No fear. If you have a lifestyle of fear, I want to tell you, that's not a spiritual gift. That is something in uh, complete opposite of that, diametrically opposed to that. You know, if you believe in a sovereign God who is in control of all things and you are his child, what should you fear? God is not going to bring anything into your life he hasn't orchestrated for your good and his glory. And I know this week, boy, the last several weeks, there's been a great opportunity for us to fear. I mean, uh, the tsunami in Japan and, and the reactors and all that's going on in Libya. And I'm going to tell you, my son is sitting on a boat on an amphibious assault ship with the Marine Corps just off the coast of Libya now. Am I concerned? Yes. Am I fearful? To, as best I can share with you this morning, no. Because for me to be fearful would be showing a lack of confidence in God. My son, I am convinced with all my heart, knows Jesus Christ is his Lord and Savior, and he is put there for a unique purpose that God has set aside. So I'm not fear. Am I concerned as a father? Of course I am. But fear is not going to win the day because both he and I have a faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And as Hebrews 11:1 1 said, he is over all things. He is placed as a sovereign leader and controller of everything. So I either believe that or I don't. 
If I don't believe that, I'm going to see that fear starts to manifest itself in my life. If I believe that, you know what there is? There's peace. There's this peace that passes all understanding. The author's trying to say, but as we look all through all the book of Hebrews, guys, you're being fearful. And that is baggage. That is weight that's going to hold you back from being all that God has called you to be as you run this run of faith. So church, set aside fear. What's your greatest fear this morning as you've been contemplating trusting God completely? I shared with our small group last week, you know, I so want to be that guy that has it all on the table. And, and, and fully, not just from a sermon to you or as a pastor to you, but within my heart, be able to say, God, it's all yours. Have that heart that even Job had, it's all on the table. Lord, you give and you take away. Blessed be your name. There is a life that is fearless and is grounded in trust and faith in a holy and sovereign God. What else is the author trying to tell us as his runner's preparing? Not only is he removing burdens or uh, uh, undue weight, but look what he also, he says, and, um, and, and, and the sin went so easily entangles us. Not only the burden, the encumbrance of weight, if you even think of the Olympics, you know, you can see the athletes, they always come through and they always got their warm-up suits on and tennis shoes and hats and all this neat stuff, but when they run, what happens? They take it all off. They want to get as light as possible. And the next dangerous thing for a runner is anything that can entangle you or encumber you. Um, again, your shoes being untied. I don't know how many times we used to tell our kids to tie your shoes. And when they chose to ignore it, they'd be in the house five minutes later. Daddy, I, I fell on the basketball court. Why? Because you stepped on your shoestring and you, got, you fumbled around and you tangled. And I can't help whenever I read through Scripture, the one that translated entangle, it carries me back to even when I was in the Marine Corps, this thing called Tanglefoot. Those guys in the military, you would know what I'm talking about. It's a single uh, piece of bob wire that's kind of meshed around, and it's about ankle high. Now, I don't have to tell you any more about how this works or anybody trying to run or even walk through a perimeter. You know, your foot gets caught, and then you can't bring your other one up, and what happens? You go down on your face. Well, now you're in this tangled foot. It's sticking to all parts of your body. It's just, it's just cumbersome. It's just hard to get through. You cannot run through it. It very much impedes your travel, which is the design of it. Well, as we think about this idea of entangling, uh, not only laying off excessive weight, but these things that entangle us from being the runner that God's called us to be, what can we look at Hebrews? Again, we saw fear, but listen, the core problem is unbelief. You know, it's the reason the author brings us to chapter, chapter 11 when it talks about the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. He goes to a great extent to try to tell us we got great confidence in God. We need to demonstrate a great faith in God. But the Hebrews, at least some of them, no doubt, were not doing that. Turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verses 12. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, the author says this, take care, take care, brethren, that there be not any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And he goes through the rest of this section kind of describing even how Moses, when he was leading people through the wilderness, going to the promised land, what did they exercise? They exercised unbelief in God's ability to give them the promised land. And as a result, that whole generation wandered in the desert and they died. And of course, then Joshua came up and took them to the promised land. But what befell them was lack of faith in God, lack of faith in his ability to do what he said he would do. 
He was going to give them the promised land. They sent spies out. Ten of them came back and said, can't be done. These guys are too big. It's a great land, but these guys are too big. They lost focus, didn't they? They focused on what they could physically see instead of through the eyes of faith of what God had already promised would be. So he describes that after verse 12, and he finally concludes in verse 19. So we see that they were not able to enter because of what? What does the Scripture say? Because of their unbelief. Their lack of faith prevented them from experiencing the blessings and power of God to move into the promised land. Oh, so restricting is it for us today. You know, we're not experiencing all that God would have for us because you know what? We're not, we're not appropriating faith in our life. We're not trusting Him at His Word. You know, in the next four weeks, I'm excited our pastor is going to leave it us through the theology of marriage and what God intended. The one who designed marriage, who put it into place, is going to give us some biblical principles and theology behind it. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to challenge you. Because our culture today says something about marriage that is so contrary to Scripture. And you know what we're going to come to? We're going to come to a crisis of faith. Am I going to be willing to trust what I'm hearing God's Word say? Or am I just going to continue doing what Dr. Phil says? I'm going to tell you, one has a longer history than the other. God has a lot longer history and is more faithful than Dr. Phil ever will be. You hear me, church? I don't care what psychologists say. I don't care what sociologists say. I don't care what secular marriage counselors say. I care what God says. You may give me my opinion or your opinion on how I should maintain my car, but you know what I'm going to stay with? The owner's manual the guy that designed my car. I'm going to kind of stick with what he says because he knows my car inside and out. Your opinion is like a belly button. Everybody's got one. <laughs> Trust God. Have faith in his word. Don't develop a heart of unbelief. And why would the author be writing this? Look what he says. Look what he says in chapter 12, verse 1. Kind of, he says, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which what? so easily entangles us. The author is saying this lack of faith, this ability to uh, develop unbelief towards God, it easily entangles us. That ought to be a cause of concern for us, church, shouldn't it? That the author is saying that this unbelief or this lack of faith, it so easily entangles us. Why? Why does it so easily entangle us? Because we live in a fallen flesh. We live in a fallen flesh that really wants to put me at the center of my world. Which again is in opposition to what scripture teaches us. God is the center of our world. God is the center of our universe. His will, his desire, his passions is at the center. And we are what? Servants to that. That's one reason uh, it so easily entangles us. So how do we keep from getting entangled? Is there an answer? You know, I don't want to be entangled in my own uh, thoughts and philosophies of life. I want to be wrapped up in the th promises of God. I want to be trusting Him at all, in all His Word. So, so how can I do that? Well, Romans 10, 17, Paul writes this. Faith comes by hearing. And church, I hope you can finish the rest of this verse. Faith comes by hearing and what? Hearing from the Word of God. Isn't it amazing how every sermon you hear here always ultimately comes back to this book? 
Because in his book is the only place we find absolute truth. It's the only place you find truth that applies for all people in all places and for all time. And it has been proven trustworthy. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. As you look through Scripture, and even as I studied these past few weeks, you know, faith and God's words are it's inseparable. You can't have a strong, dynamic faith and not be grounded in God's Word. Oh, you can know a lot about God's Word, but I'm going to tell you, you don't experience the power and blessing of God unless you appropriate it in your life. You place it in your life. Faith comes by hearing, hearing from the Word of God. Faith and God's words are inseparable. So as we look at the audience of Hebrews, we already talked about their problem of fear. We talked about their problem of unbelief is why the author is leading them to this chapter on faith. So what, what's the problem? And I told you faith and God's words are inseparable. Let me, let me share with you what the author had a problem doing. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 5 and just read just a few verses here. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, you remember as we talked about several weeks ago, the first several chapters the author is trying to show for us the superiority of Christ over everything that was symbolized in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, he said the Old Testament was very much all the uh, worship that took place, at least the ceremonial worship, was very much a shadow of the substance Jesus Christ. He is the better tabernacle. He is a superior high priest. And the offering that was given was his own blood, so it's far superior than the animals. So he's kind of building this case. And, and in part of that argument, he goes back to an Old Testament uh, figure called Melchizedek. Don't want to spend much time there, but he's trying to say, listen, Christ is a type of Melchizedek, this Old Testament priest that came from Jerusalem. But listen, as he's trying to explain this deep truth to his audience, look at the trouble he's having. In verse 11 it says, Concerning him, talking about Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have the need again of someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not allaying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Back up uh, to verse 13, please. For everyone who partakes only in milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. The Hebrew audience was uh, demonstrating a lack of faith towards God. And I told you earlier that faith and God's words are inseparable. Well, what do we see the author saying here? Listen, there's so much I want to explain to you. There's some more deeper truths I want to share with you. But as I'm writing this, I'm discerning you can't hear it. Because you're still babes in Christ. You understand only the fundamentals of the faith. You're like a baby who only takes milk and are not ready for solid food. You're not mature. Well, why? How can that be? Because they weren't students of God's Word. Remember verse 13, For everyone who partakes only milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. You tell me I'm not sure that I can do something or I feel God's calling me, but boy, I don't have the faith. You know what you're sharing with somebody when you say that? I don't have 
a grasp on God's Word. I don't see His glory and His power. You get that when you read God's Word. And by reading God's Word, your faith is grown. Your faith is strengthened. You look through the Bible. You will not see a separation of God's Word and faith. Scripture after Scripture. But I want, I want to share with you just, just one instance. This idea of maturity is found in John 17. And we know John 17 to really be the Lord's Prayer. That's His high priestly prayer where He's praying before God. But in John 17, 17, He says this. Listen. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is the truth. Now we think about this idea of sanctification. Uh, a very easy definition is this. Becoming more like Christ. It is growing to be more like Christ. And here Jesus is saying, sanctify them. He's praying to God, sanctify your church with the truth. God, your word is the truth. If you want to grow in your faith and understanding of God and leap out and have a life that counts for the cause of Christ, you're going to have to become a student of His Word. And you're going to have to take what God has impressed upon your heart through the Holy Spirit and step out in faith, trusting and believing in what He says is true. Oh, man. The levels of growth you'll experience, the more trust and faith you will develop. But if you're concerned about your faith in God this morning and, and how strong it is, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to challenge you. How is your time alone in studying God's Word? Is this it this morning? Is this it? I mean, is this one hour that uh, Brother Mike or a pastor preaches? Is that it? Is that to the extent? Friends, you're not going to experience great faith. Man, it takes a daily intake. Arnold Schwarzenegger, I, I can't imagine him having just a one-hour lunch every week and become the man of strength, physical strength he is. Then how can we expect to have faith like those demonstrated in Hebrews chapter 11 to stand against the wiles of the devil and to face difficult circumstances if we have an hour a week as our intake on what we really need? And that's nurture from God's Word. Oh, I pray. I, I pray that you develop a time... A disciplined time of study of God's Word. I don't care, morning, late, evening. Everybody's got their preference. But I pray that's part of your life. I, I, would, I would encourage you to go to somebody you admire that seems to have uh, absolute faith in God and ask them how they got there. And I, and I think their answer is going to be only by the grace of God through the Word of God. That's the only way. That's the only way. Sanctify them in the truth, your Word is the truth. Hebrew sin of faithfulness occurred because they failed to know God's word. It is the sin that so easily entangle us. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, we've looked at let's lighten up. Let's lighten up. Let's shed the fear that those things that hold us from being the runner that we can be for Christ. Uh, let's remove the sin that so easily entangles us. Uh, let's start demonstrating a faith in God that comes by reading God's word. But not only are we to lighten up, let's keep it up. Let's keep it up. Go back to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to read the latter part of verse 1 as well as uh, verse, well, just the latter part of verse 1. Kind of catch up to where I'm at. Lay aside every, every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangle us, entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know, there's just a few things that you can observe just by reading uh, this section, let us run with endurance 
the race that is before us. First thing is, the author says we should run and not walk. Now, I don't know about you in your life, but it takes a little extra effort to run than walk. Is that true in your life? Amen? It's going to take a little bit more effort to be a runner than it is to be a walker. Well, I'm going to tell you, if you're going to be a faithful uh, servant of God and you want to have a magnificent faith, a faith that counts for the cause of Christ, we need to kind of just reconcile in our mind that it's going to take work. Let me tell you, I tried putting this under my pillow and sleeping on it. If you're there, I don't want to embarrass you, but it's not going to work. It's going to work when it's open during a time uh, that you're awake and alert and you're studying God's Word. That's when it's going to happen. But please understand me. Understand me. If you're going to run, it's going to take work. Run. The second thing just by, that we can observe just, just through looking at the text, that we're called to run with endurance. This walk of faith is not a sprint. And I think this is where so many people miss the marker, or you'll see somebody, they come to faith, they're excited in the things of Christ, and you're thinking, wow, God's going to just use them in an awesome way. I'm so excited. And then three months later, you can't find them, even if you sent the FBI out after them. What could that be? There was a misconception about what faith in God is. Lord, I, I came, I had all these problems, I said this prayer, I got dunked in water. How come I still have these problems? Then his faith is no good, and they walk away. In their mind was this idea, it was just a sprint. It was something I can jump through these hoops, and all of a sudden my life's going to be better. And I'm going to tell you, to come into faith in God, your life's probably not going to be better. It's going to be more challenging. You know, the most miserable people this morning is, is not the lost. It's those who come to faith in God and drift away because the Holy Spirit is convicting them. So not only are we to run, not only to run with endurance, but it's a race that sets before us. You know, when you enter a race, and I've only done like one or two in my life, I just didn't stumble into it. I didn't show up and say, hey, look, there's a, people running. I think I'll just run with them. There is a predetermination in my mind I want to enter that race. Of course, there's sign-ups you go through and fees you pay. But also, usually, last year when I did the river run, there's a lot of training that goes ahead of that time. And if you're committed to the race, regardless of the barriers, regardless of difficulties, you're going to train so you can enter that race. So there is a preparedness of mind that I'm going to commit because before me, there's a prize, and that's the finish. So these things we can gather just by looking at the passage. Well, the call to run and endure is based either on an earlier exhortation, really, that the author gave them in chapter 10, verse 32 through 39. Let's read that together. The author writes, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourself a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay 
but my righteous one shall live by faith. And he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. The author is really kind of putting this idea in our head, you've got to endure in the faith. In this race, this is a marathon. This is a lifetime experience as you walk with God and grow. It's not a sprint. All our problems are not going to be fixed. All our understanding is not going to accomplish in a short period of time. I know in my walk in faith as I study, man, there's, there's new things that God reveals from His Word, even on passages that I have read so many times before. But that's maturity. That's God revealing more of His nature and more of His character as I study His Word. As we read through this passage, there's a call to remember former days. Remember, he's trying to encourage them to endure. There's a call to remember former days when they were in the race. Verse 32 talks about when you were first saved. And I, I, I know there's many of us that remember that time when we first come to faith in Christ. I mean, come believing that we want to make him Lord of our life. And Lord, whether it leads to the deepest part of Africa or to my neighbor next door, I'm going to learn to be faithful to you as I study your word. I want to be someone who brings honor and glory to your name. There's this exhilaration in our heart. So he calls to remembrance. Hey, endure, remember how it was when you were first saved. That willingness you had to commit all things to Christ. What else? He said, remember even when you endured persecution. Now, they're getting ready to face persecution again. But he said, remember, you faced this before. Was not God faithful? calling back even from their own history, God's faithfulness. Well, also verse 34, when you ministered in his name, when you stepped out in faith and meet, met the needs of others in my name. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? In verse 35 through 39 is that call to remain in Christ, to endure in the faith. We all know in a marathon, cross-country, which is what the author's kind of describing here, man, there can be barriers. But it's that eye on the prize, that eye on crossing the finishing line that drives us, that keeps us going. This morning, I can't help but think, but maybe you're in that boat. Maybe you're in the same boat as the audience of Hebrews. There was a time, man, whenever you were, you were enduring. I mean, you were persevering. There were hard times, but praise God, you had faith in a sovereign God. He's in control of all things. I'm just going to place faith and trust in him. And, but, but you look back now and you say, you know, I am not presently where I was then. Something happened. I don't know what it is. And I know when that thing happens in our life, you know, the thing that we think is too big for God to overlook, that we're pretty much done. And maybe that's a reason some of us don't endure anymore. Some of us are not persevering in the faith anymore. Let me give you a verse that I, I pray just brings great comfort to you. If we confess our sin, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin... God is faithful. No, it has nothing to do with us, our faithfulness. God is faithful. If we repent and confess that sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, the picture I get there when I read that passage is it's as if it never happened in God's eyes. It's as if it never happened. 
That ought to give us encouragement to keep it up, to endure in the faith. And why would God even allow a verse written like, to be written like that? It's almost like he's anticipating that we're going to fail him from time to time. He is. He's aware of that. He realizes, though, redeemed on the inside, given a new life on the inside, we're still surrounded by a flesh that's going to fail us from time to time. That's why he gives us this encouraging verse. Listen, when you sin as a believer in Jesus Christ, don't let it be bankrupt you. Don't let it be a reason for you to step out of the race. Trust the same God that you placed your faith and trust in for the, for the forgiveness of sin and redemption of the soul to also forgive you your sin as a believer if you've confessed it, if you've repented to it, if you come before him with a broken and contrite heart and say, Lord, I have sinned. Please forgive me. 1 John 1 and 9 says it's done. Try to remind God of the next day and he says, what sin? What are you talking about? I love what our pastor shared many sermons ago when he says, but why can't we forget? You know, we don't forget because it brings us back to the cross of Calvary and always brings our remembrance to the price of sin. But we need to trust God that he is able to forgive us our sin and put us back in the race and pursue after the things of God. Repent and return. Run with endurance that race that is set before you. But not only we need to lighten up and let's keep up, but finally, let's look up. Let's look up. I mentioned earlier, I don't know of any marathon runner, and I'm not a great uh, 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 student of marathon runners, but I see them on the Olympics, and I say, see those guys running. I don't see them running. Hey, Mom. Hey, Aunt Bessie. I'm in the Olympics. Look at me. You know, do you ever see them doing that? I tell you, as they're running, and, you know, they always got the motorcycle guy, which is kind of cool. I, I, anyway, but they're, they're kind of got the guy on the motorcycle with a camera, and you see the guy, maybe he's a runner. There is this look of determination on his face. I mean, he is running. And he is looking and he is going. He's not uh, getting caught up with distractions that are all around him. He's focused on finishing. And he's focused on finishing well. The author in 12.2 says this, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, or focusing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm going to tell you, there's a sermon right there in that verse. There really is. Everybody got another 45 minutes? I'm just kidding. Let me capture just a highlight for that. Let me tell you, the believer's reward, the believer's prize, the believer's focus is Jesus. He is all that we need to run this race. But our eyes need to remain focused on him. I know many of y'all know the, uh, in the gospel where Peter stepped out of the boat, and we know that account, he was walking to Jesus, and uh, walking on water. Walking on water, walking to Jesus. But isn't it interesting when he started to sink? He started looking at the distractions around him, didn't he? He started looking at the waves and the storm. What did he do? He took his eyes off the prize. He took his eyes off his reward. He took his eyes off the one that's going to sustain him in the race, Jesus, and he began to sink. It's the very same thing the author's bringing out here. We find ourselves in left field spiritually because we have taken our eyes off of Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, is our reward. He is our prize, and he is our focus. He is what we are to set our eyes upon or fix our eyes on as we're running this race. He also is the author and perfecter of our faith. Oh, I'd like to go there. He endured the cross because there was joy set before him. I, I know most of y'all have seen The Passion of the Christ. 
And as I was praying on this and meditating on this, I'm thinking, through all this, there was joy in Jesus that allowed him to do it. There was some joy that was set before him. And I kind of really started looking at this and trying to study this. And, and, you know, it's not the primary focus. I'll tell you that up front. I don't even think it was the author's intent, but I am going to show you a scripture. I, the church. You, we are part of that joy that was set before him. You know, many of us throughout the world are coming this morning and we're praising the name of Jesus for this great salvation. And that had to be part of the joy. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Very quickly. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. It says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, talking about Jesus, and through whom are all, all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. It was fitting for Jesus to endure this because he's going to bring many sons to glory. So the author is telling us, I mean, there must have been some joy in the heart of God because of this very morning, there'd be people like you and I who were dead in our trespasses and sin, who were burdened about that and cried upon God for mercy and found it in Jesus Christ. And since then, our life has not been the same. It has been radically different. And though we have stumbled, our eyes is on Jesus who is our reward and we're growing and we're maturing and we're experiencing more of him in our life. And we're learning to trust Him and exercise more faith in Him. So certainly that was one of the things. But I think the primary thing the author is after is the joy of being exalted by God, which we capture right in the very beginning of Hebrews chapter 1. Listen to this. God, after He spoke long ago in the fathers and prophets in many portions in many ways, in His last days has spoken to His Son, who He appointed heir of all things, through him also he made the world and is the radiance in his, of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and it holds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty, and having been made much better than the angels, has inherited a more excellent name than them. So we see the joy that's set before Christ with his exalted nature. Even Hebrews, or excuse me, Philippians captures this. Being found in the appearance of, of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for this reason also, Godly highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those that are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The joy is God was going to exalt him, give him a name above all names, that every name would confess that he is Lord, but also the joy church is us this morning as we're gathering here and hearing the word of God proclaimed. Man, that's part of the joy that caused him to endure such a horrible death. The author of Hebrews says he is now seated at the right hand of God, a place of authority. And that, I'll tell you, there is great comfort there. I love it in Matthew 28. We call it the Great Commission where he says, All authority is now given to me. Now go and preach the gospel. And we know the rest of it. Baptize him in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he goes this, he says, And lo, I am with you even to the end of the world. There's great comfort having the presence of somebody with me who has all authority and all power. There's no fear there. There's no peace there. I just pray that I learn to exercise more and greater faith. There's a joy we can know, but it only comes in Jesus. I pray this morning your desire is to leave a legacy. 
leave a legacy for those that come behind you that said he or she made their life count for the cause of Christ. One who was about to face execution said these words, the Apostle Paul. He says this, For I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Listen to what Paul says. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And listen to this, church. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. A man in the final days of his life sharing that with us. He's saying, I fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. And I am looking forward now to what God has for me. I shared with you last week, boy, my passion, the words I want to hear in heaven is well done, my good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of your master. That's only going to come about one way, church, and that is through faith. Not blind faith. I mean the, the presence of God in your life faith. The presence of God as you look at the creordered faith. Faith that has been proven over redemptive history to be true. That's the faith I'm challenging with this morning. I know there may be some here this morning that have never demonstrated that type of faith. Maybe you've come to church your whole life, but you know, you know in your heart of hearts there's no faith in God. You're coming here simply to check off a box. Maybe your husband's happy because you're here. Maybe your wife, maybe your mom and dad's happy because you're here. But within your heart of hearts, there is a brokenness over sin. You've come to understand that if you stood before God today, you are hopeless and helpless because you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Let me share a word with you. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. How can you experience this faith in your life? You first come through by way of the cross. You come to God and, and simply say, Lord, I am a sinner, a miserable sinner. But I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and I want him to be Lord of my life. I want to trust him as my Savior. And God's word says he'll do just that. Believe you're here this morning. You know you're not on the race anymore. There was a time you can remember back to, but boy, there's been so much burden on your life. You've added on some baggage. You've been entangled in sin. I'm going to tell you from the Word of God, there's release for that. You can, get back into the, you can get back into the race. You can still finish your life, as Paul said. I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. But it comes this way, repenting of that sin. We confess it. God is faithful to forgive it. Is that you this morning? Would you please stand? Let's